Good afternoon and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine and beyond, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association and in conjunction with WERU, your community radio station. Common Ground can be heard on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. right here on WERU. And archives of previous episodes can be found on WERU's website at WERU.org, as well as the WERU app for your smartphone. My name is CJ Walk. I use he, him pronouns, and I am your host for Common Ground Radio. On today's show, we are listening to the keynote address given at this year's Common Ground Country Fair. This keynote address was given by Leah Penniman of Soulfire Farm in Grafton, New York. And her talk is titled, Farming While Black, African Diasporic Wisdom for Farming and Food Justice. And since this is a recording, we are not taking calls on today's show. Thank you. Greetings, peace and blessings. My name is Leah Penniman. I'm the farm manager and co-director at Soulfire Farm in Grafton, New York, Mohican Territory. I send you warm wishes on this very frigid September morning. Um, if you're anything like us, we've had several frosts in the past week, and my heart goes out to those who are experiencing and mitigating damages from crop loss and so on and so forth. Uh, it is really just an honor to be with you all. I've been part of the NOFA community for my entire teenage and adult life since the mid-90s, and I have just deep respect for all those who farm and tend the land. So I wish we could be together in person, uh, but we'll, we'll certainly make the best of it. Today, we are going to be talking about uprooting racism and seeding sovereignty in the food system, something that we at Soulfire Farm have dedicated our lives to. Uh, but before we jump into that, I want to start by paying homage to our ancestors. I particularly want to call in today my grandmother, Brownlee McCullough, uh, who was the first person who taught me about gardening. We tended a strawberry patch together and made strawberry jam and crabapple jam, um, extracting the pectin ourselves. And if it wasn't for her, I probably wouldn't have the love of land that I have now. So I invite you in this moment to think of an ancestor, relative, um, who has inspired your love of land and say their name out loud at the count of three. One, two, three. Ashe. I also want to give thanks and pay homage to the original peoples of the lands upon which we work and live and grow. Um, in our case, we are on Stockbridge Muncie Mohican territory. We're also on Haudenosaunee territory. And the original people of this land were forcibly removed uh, from their homelands in the 1800s to a small reservation in northern Wisconsin. And we've been honored over the past several years to start to build a relationship of friendship and solidarity with the Mohican community, exchanging seeds, sharing resources, and even granting a cultural respect easement uh, to guarantee access to the homelands. And invite you, if you've not already explored what accountability can look like on the territories that uh, you occupy to do so. I also want to pay homage and give thanks to our teams. You know, none of us would be here uh, at this conference if somebody wasn't taking care of the chickens or, you know, covering the crops with Agribon or whatever needs to be done. In Soulfire Farm, we're a team of eight. Our extended Northeast Farmers of Color network is 300 strong, and we are 
because of, we exist really because of this network of solidarity and support. So I give thanks for my team and I give thanks for your teams as well. So our ancestral grandmothers in the Dahomey region of West Africa in the 16 and 1700s were faced with a really uncertain future. They were witnessing their family members, you know, their cousins or aunties and uncles get snatched up, kidnapped, forced into ships from which there were no report backs, right? And in the face of that, they had the audacious courage to pick up the seeds of okra, molokia, cotton, sesame, black-eyed pea, right? Take these seeds and braid them into their hair because they believed against odds in a future of tilling and reaping on soil. And they believed that we, their descendants, would exist to inherit that seed. And my belief is, you know, not only did they braid the physical seeds, but they also braided the seeds of wisdom around right relationship with lands and human communities. What do I mean by that? Well, so many of our agricultural practices that we often think of as European or ahistorical actually have roots in Afro-Indigenous wisdom. Things like cover cropping, raised beds, terraces, practices like perennial polycultures and rotational grazing of livestock, and even some of the distributed economic practices like combit, which is a type of work party, you know, where I invite you over one Saturday to plant beans with me and the next Saturday I'm going to help you plant your beans and the third Saturday we're going to help another farmer down the road. And in that way, the harvest is also staggered and we can support each other on that. You know, the host provides the, the soup, the host provides the brass band in the case of a really challenging task. You know, in economic structures like the proto-credit union, also called the SUSU, where we're all putting in money and lending to each other to make sure that, you know, you can buy that cow or put in that new orchard. So these technologies actually came with our ancestors in the bowels of those slave ships uh, to the West, this way of being in harmony with the lands and in harmony with human communities. But of course, when we arrive here, uh, in, in what is now the United States, we see that there's a really different food system. It's not relying on interdependence between humans and the earth and humans and one another. Rather, the colonized West has racial disparities and racial exploitation built into the food system from the very beginning, whether you're looking at land, labor, ecology, capital, food. And this is not an accident. It's not that the food system is broken. It was really designed this way with stolen land and exploited labor as part of its DNA. So let's explore a little bit of that history, right? We have to actually go all the way back to 1455 when Pope Nicholas put out a decree called the Doctrine of Discovery that said that Christian nations had the authority to loot and enslave non-Christian nations, saying invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all pagans, dis dispossess them of their wealth, reduce them to perpetual slavery. And this was the decree that justified the attempted genocide of indigenous people, stealing one and a half billion acres of land from people. Um, and that stolen land is still the land that many of us cultivate today. Unless you're an indigenous person of Turtle Island, right? We are on occupied and stolen land. And the doctrine of discovery is not old news. It's been upheld uh, by the Supreme Court many times, even by our beloved and blessed memory, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 2005 against the Oneida Nation, this idea that once uh, a white Christian puts down a flag, that land becomes property of that white Christian and their society, and that indigenous people fundamentally uh, 
um, are not allowed to have that sovereignty and those rights. So stolen land became one of the, the pillars of the U.S. food system. And of course, the other pillar is stolen labor. We know that 12 and a half million Africans survived the kidnapping and the forced journey across the Atlantic. Many more perished in the sea. Um, and, and people weren't, you know, contrary to popular mythology, you know, people weren't snatched up uh, because they had strong backs and strong biceps, but really as agricultural experts. Uh, we know that the climate in Northern Europe was uh, frigid to say the least, and so growing crops like cotton and sugarcane, tobacco and rice, this was the purview of indigenous people of Africa. They were experts in this. So slavers would specifically target, for example, the Mende and the Wolof, who were rice growers, to bring them to the Carolinas to establish that multi-trillion dollar rice industry. And it would be some relief to think that, you know, at the end of legal chattel slavery, that somehow the United States had a moment of reckoning and said, you know, this whole stolen land, stolen labor thing is not what we want to do anymore. But of course, it did continue and just took other forms. Uh, one of these forms was called convict leasing. So what happened at the end of chattel slavery was that the South was in a freak out, essentially, because their free labor source was being uh, threatened. Uh, there was emancipation, there was the potential for black people to start their own businesses and their own farms. So they implemented a series of laws called the Black Codes, which made it illegal to do things that previously were overlooked. Things like loitering, that means hanging around, right? Things like vagrancy, that means not having a job or specifically not having a year-long contract on a plantation farm. Um, it, it was even a crime to be, quote, not upright and honest, the punishment for which was to have your children taken away and apprenticed to their former masters. So with all of these uh, new laws on the books, the prisons quickly filled with black people, not for actual crimes, right, but for imagined crimes. And then these people were leased back to the plantations, the railroads, and the mines to work for free, um, doing the work that they were formerly doing under chattel slavery. And this system was so popular that it actually made up uh, three quarters of Alabama's state budget in the late 1800s. And it continues to this day. Um, under the draconian immigration policies of the current administration, there's often labor shortages on farms. And so populations of predominantly black men who are incarcerated are being forced to work the harvest uh, for no pay or for pay as low as a dollar an hour. Uh, and this is 2019-2020. So for those who you know, were not forced to work on the plantations through incarceration because of that tidy loophole in the 13th Amendment that says that you can be enslaved uh, if you've committed a crime. They were toiling under a debt peonage system called sharecropping. And one of the most powerful stories that I've heard about sharecropping is actually a, a personal one of Fannie Lou Hamer, who uh, is well known for her work with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, but less well known that she actually grew up as a, as a sharecropper and was out in the fields picking cotton as young as five, six years old. And she noticed that the sharecropper's um, boss had set the scales to undervalue the cotton harvest. And so for context, the way sharecropping works is essentially the plantation owner, you know, owns the tools, the seeds, the land, the housing, the clothes, all the equipment uh, that the laborers need. And those are on loan uh, to the sharecroppers and they're paid back in a share of the crop at the end of the year. 
So it's very important to the sharecropper, obviously, to have a fair valuation of that harvest. So anyway, the, the plantation owners had, had a common practice of, of tipping the scales, and Fannie Lou Hamer, recognizing this as a child, went and set the scales right in the middle of the night, and she, she reflects in her memoir that that is when I became an activist. So this debt peonage system was so insidious that more sharecroppers uh, actually found themselves in deeper poverty at the end of the year than at the beginning. So they worked an entire year, you know, 80-hour weeks out in the field and actually had less money at the end when they paid off their debts than at the beginning. And of course, you're not allowed to leave uh, the farm if you still have a debt and you'd go to debtor's prison and so ended up essentially being trapped in a form of neo-slavery. So despite all this, right, despite sharecropping, despite convict leasing, despite the broken promise of 40 acres and a mule, so emancipated black folks never got the land they were promised by the Union Army, you know, black people still had a yearning to own their own land, like so many of us. And, you know, right after the Civil War, when they met with the Union Army, they, they said, and I quote, you know, what we need are homes and the ground beneath them so we can plant fruit trees and say to our children, these are ours. But that land was never given. So what black farmers did is they saved up money um, from working extra jobs in addition to their cotton farming. So they would work, you know, fixing shoes or tending horses or doing carpentry and were able to purchase by 1910 almost 16 million acres of land. Now, albeit these were often small parcels, two, three, five acres in marginal land, but it still was their own and they were able to start to have some modicum of independence. Now, this was, of course, a threat to the status quo of the sharecroppers and the plantation owners. And so they instituted a, a violent backlash against these independent farmers. The Ku Klux Klan, the White Caps, the White Citizens Council, they went to the homes of these farmers. They burned down their homes. They, they lynched people. They drove people off the land. Um, and there are over 4,000 cases of this that we know about where land was seized in a violent manner. And this became a push factor for the Great Migration when 6 million African Americans fled the rural South to the urban North and Midwest um, seeking some respite from the violence. Now, as black farmers fled, of course, it left a labor vacuum in the U.S. ag system. And there are so many points along this historical timeline when the United States really had an opportunity to reflect upon whether stolen land and exploited labor was really how we wanted to do our food system. But unfortunately, the trend kept continuing. So in this case, um, that labor vacuum was filled with migrant and guest workers from other countries, uh, the Philippines, uh, from China, from Mexico, from Jamaica. It started out with uh, Bracero program, it's now the H2, H2A program, um, and one of the challenges with the migrant labor uh, programs is that migrant workers are not actually afforded the same protections under the law as U.S.-born workers or workers in other industries. One example of this is in the mid-1930s when we had this wonderful package of progressive legislation called the New Deal. For the first time, you know, there were worker protections on the books. Things like the eight-hour workday, uh, child labor restrictions, the right to a day off in seven, the right to overtime pay, uh, workers' compensation, Social Security for, uh, you know, retirement and, and protections in old age. 
And when this legislation was being debated in Congress, the Southern Democrats, the Southern Democrats actually blocked it because originally it included all workers, including black people, brown people, farm workers, domestic workers. And they said, we can't have these benefits extend um, to black people. And they were very frank about that in committee. You can read the transcripts. And so the legislation was modified to actually exclude farm workers and domestic workers. And we still live with that legacy today where, you know, if you look at the Fair Labor Standards Act or the National Labor Relations Act, there are exclusions for farm workers. And so those basic protections of being a worker, like having overtime pay and the right to unionize are not extended to the people who arguably do the most important work in society. So of course, not all black farmers fled to the North, right? Many of us stayed in the South and the Carolinas and Georgia and tried to hold on to the land that we had left and the businesses that we had left. But there was tragically a new enemy uh, against the black farmer, which really was the government itself. Uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, as you know, is responsible for lending uh, loans to, to farmers, for technical assistance, for crop allotments, for crop insurance, and other programs that support all farmers. But black farmers were systematically denied access to these programs. In fact, it got so bad during the civil rights movement that Pete Daniels writes that the USDA programs were sharpened into weapons to punish civil rights activity. So if you went to register to vote, if you signed a petition, if you joined the NAACP, you could be pretty sure that your loan application would be thrown into the trash. And in the times of drought or pest outbreak, if you couldn't get a loan to install that irrigation or to get that extra equipment, that could mean foreclosure. And that actually became the leading way that black farmers started losing their land um, throughout the mid-1900s into the 1980s was because of USDA discrimination. There was a class action lawsuit filed, Pigford v. Glickman, that was settled in 1999 in favor of the black farmers. It was the largest civil rights settlement in the history of this country. Um, so a very important symbolic victory because it showed that black farmers' decline from 14% of the nation farmers down to about 1% today was not because of choice or not knowing how to farm, not being good business people, but really because of this uh, fundamental discrimination that was happening. However, that lawsuit really was too little too late. The average payout was $50,000, which maybe gets you your tractor back, but not much more than that. And most of the plaintiffs were now in their 80s and 90s and not ready to start over. So the consequence of black land loss, you know, not only was the, the loss of these businesses and farms, but also generational wealth. You know, 80% of, of wealth in this country comes through inheritance, mostly through property. And, you know, some calculations show that at least $120 billion of generational wealth was lost to the black community through the forcible dispossession of land. You are tuned in to Common Ground Radio, and today we are listening to the keynote address given on September 25th, 2020 at the Common Ground Country Fair, and this is Leah Penniman of Soul Fire Farm speaking about uprooting racism and seeding sovereignty in the food system. Since this is a recording, we are not taking calls on today's show. So now we, we come up to, you know, where we are in the Northeast, and racism and white supremacy look quite different when you come up to the north. It's not the cross burnings and the house burnings so much. Um, one of the major ways that these, the systemic racism in the food system perpetuated itself was through redlining. 
So redlining also started in the 1930s when the federal government commissioned these maps to be made that ranked neighborhoods from most desirable to lend to for banks down to least desirable and outlined black and brown communities in red indicating do not lend to these communities. Um, and this prevented black families who were moving north from getting their own homes, right? From establishing their own businesses, from you know being able to achieve the American dream, so to speak, of having wealth and access. And it's powerful to note that even today, your zip code is a leading determiner of your life expectancy. Your zip code also determines your access to fresh food. It determines your access to quality education, um, your morbidity rates in terms of uh, lung disease, of asthma, of cancer. And this comes from this legacy of not only preventing lending to black families, but also ghettoizing black and brown families into these neighborhoods through restrictive zoning. The federal government put out guidelines to prevent, quote, the intermixing of inharmonious racial groups, which meant you basically couldn't leave the red line, right? But you couldn't own a home in the red line. So you were subject to absentee landlords, unscrupulous, lenders, black market lenders, and so forth, the legacy of which perpetuates today, which is why a white child in this country is born on average 16 times wealthier than a black child when they take their very first breath, right? And that's not because they were doing some kind of calisthenics or like financial literacy classes in the womb to earn it. It's really because of a legacy of systemic discrimination and exclusion from being able to build wealth through property ownership. You know, when the GI Bill came out at the end of, of World War II and soldiers came home, they were able to enjoy 0% interest mortgages from the government. And in our region, over 10,000, sorry, in our region, over 67,000 mortgages were given out just here. But less than 100 actually went to families who were non-white because of the restrictions imposed by redlining. So that brings us right to where we are today. Uh, we have this wonderful child here, you know, getting her food from the emergency food system. And one in three black children are relying on the emergency food system in order to just meet their basic caloric needs. Uh, one in six children overall are relying on emergency food and free food to meet their basic caloric needs. But in black and indigenous communities, you know, the rates of diabetes, of heart disease, of kidney failure, and other diet-related re illnesses are much higher than they are in white communities. Not because folks don't know how to eat, not because they don't want to, you know, enjoy good fresh food, but because there literally are not grocery stores in many of these neighborhoods. There's not public transportation. There's not affordable farmer's markets or community gardens or access to this fresh food. And if you only have $3 in your pocket and you only have a corner store or a McDonald's, you know, you are going to get what you can afford. And that might be hot Cheetos. It might be a burger. Um, but you're not going to be able to get arugula, arugula salad with roasted pecans, right? Uh, like so many of us get to enjoy from, from our farms and from our uh, local food purveyors. So it also brings us to where we are today, where we have a situation where the actual labor that's done on our farms is predominantly brown and black in this country. Over 85% of the people who bend their backs over every day to tend the fields, to harvest, are people of color, predominantly Latinx, Hispanic folks, right? Mostly coming here through guest worker programs, 
um, or who were born outside of the so-called borders of the United States. And these farm workers, as we see today, especially in the age of multiple pandemic, are essential, essential workers, yet are not treated as essential human beings in terms of adequate rest, labor protections, protection from wage theft and sexual abuse on the job, PPE, you know, access to information in their native language. Um, we have a system where that would, a food system that would fundamentally collapse if it was not for these essential workers. And yet we have not figured out how to get away from that DNA of stolen land and exploited labor in our food system. We have a situation today where almost all of the farmland is white owned. In fact, in the 2017 USDA census, um, depending if you count by acreage or by land value, between 95 and 98% of the arable land in this country is white owned. And that's worse than it ever was. There used to be more equity in terms of land distribution. And you can probably tell by now, based on this whole history of forced expulsion of indigenous people, uh, forced expulsion of black people through house burnings and lynchings, through government discrimination, it is not an accident of history that the land ownership is concentrated in this way. And I believe that the way that we treat one another in our human community is also echoed in the way we treat the earth, right? So it's no surprise at all that industrial agriculture, industrial farming is a leading driver of climate change, a leading driver of water withdrawals, a leading driver of water pollution, right? Of, of conversion of wildlife habitat into managed habitat, of biodiversity loss. Industrial agriculture is arguably one of the most important factors that we need to address when we talk about being able to continue to live and breathe and thrive on this sacred planet Earth. And again, it's not that we don't know how to farm in a way that honors the earth and honors one another, right? Remember those seeds that were braided into our ancestors' hair before being forced to board transatlantic slave ships. We know how to do it. But in the name of racial capitalism, in the name of concentration of wealth and power, in the name of domination of the earth, our society has chosen a very, very dangerous path. And I think that we see now this even more exacerbated in the time of multiple pandemics, right? We have COVID, we have wildfire, we have police violence, we have despotism. And this is highlighting the already existing cracks in that industrial food system and in racial, racial capitalism. We are seeing you know, disproportionate burdens of the disease falling on communities who are already hungry, uh, farm workers who are already struggling um, to get food to all of our tables. Uh, we see the disproportionate impacts on black communities in terms of being over-policed and subject to police violence. Um, looking at frontline workers fighting the fires and the health impacts on most vulnerable communities. So this is a time, I believe, of awakening when I'm actually really hopeful that people who previously were insulated from the impacts of some of these things, people who had uh, maybe a naive trust that society and capitalism were working great, that the government was on our side, you know, have experienced for the first time maybe the empty grocery store shelves, uh, that unemployment check that never came, you know, the government lying to them and gaslighting them, telling them that their experiences are not true. And it's, I believe that it's opened up people's minds to really say, well, maybe the folks who have been most marginalized, you know, black, indigenous, and people of color, farm workers, people experiencing hung hunger, people dispossessed 
contested land. Maybe they've been telling the truth all this time, right? And maybe we're actually on the same team. So my hope is that this is not just a fad or a trend to care about black lives, to care about the earth, to care about local food systems, but it is a permanent awakening and a permanent call to action um, that will catalyze us into that next phase of justice and sustainability. So fear not, we're going to get into some good news. I'm going to tell you about the work of Soulfire and the work of our extended network of Black Indigenous farmers and what we're doing about this. But first, I want to pause and give you all a chance to reflect. Um, the question I have for you is, in this whole history that we just went over, where were your ancestors? How were your people connected? So if you would just take a few moments, write in your journal or talk to the person next to you in response to this question. How are you connected to this history? So now I want to talk a little bit about the rememberers, right? Because as long as there has been oppression, there has always been resistance, wider, deeper, more purposeful, right, than that oppression. And I believe that in every generation, there are those who have remembered the lessons and the legacy of the seeds that were braided into our ancestors' hair. So we started to ask ourselves, you know, what would it be like to actually start a farm based on that legacy of the seeds? What would it be like to go back into our history, look at these examples of strength and try to carry them forward? And when we started Soulfire Farm in 2010, we started with this idea that to free ourselves, we must feed ourselves. Or as Fannie Lou Hamer put it, if you have 400 quarts of greens and gumbo soup canned for the winter, no one can push you around or tell you what to say or do. Right? By contrast, if you have nothing canned for the winter, if you're not taking responsibility for your community sustenance, as soon as those grocery store shelves are empty or those, you know, chains are put around the door of that grocery store, you would be crawling on your knees through the dust, throwing down your Black Lives Matter sign, throwing down your voter registration, right, in order to get food to feed your children. So fundamentally, our freedom is tied into our ability to feed ourselves. And so we started looking at some of these rememberers, right? One example of a remember, remember is Dr. George Washington Carver, arguably the founder of the modern organic movement. In the late 1890s at Tuskegee University, Dr. Carver was preaching the gospel of soil health, saying, you know, we can't just be monocropping cotton year after year after year, depleting these soils. We need to plant, you know, whole fields of leguminous cover crops to restore the nitrogen in the soil. We need to be going out and mucking out uh, the swamps and using that rich muck as compost and mulch. We need to be uh, silvopasturing our livestock in the forest, you know, grazing them on acorns to finish them off. So he was a whole couple generations before Rodale talking about these principles of chemical-free soil care. Um, he would even be quoting the Bible to try to get people on board with this wild idea of planting crops just to turn them in. You know, he said, when God says, whatever you do unto the least of these you do unto me, God is talking about the earthworms. So we need to be taking care of the soil and the soil organisms, right? We started looking at the legacy of Booker T. Watley, also out of Tuskegee University, mid-1900s, arguably one of the founders of the farm-to-table movement. 
Um, he was noticing that wholesale just wasn't cutting it for black farmers and so started talking about direct consumer marketing, how we need to have diversified, diversified horticulture, have people able to be actual members of our farms and come out and do pick your own, uh, have uh, the proto CSA, which he called the clientele membership club. And so people also thought he was nuts. He's like, people are not going to come out, you know, to your farm and pick your crops for you and then pay you for the privilege of picking your crops. But I don't know about y'all, but even though I have my own farm, I still pay other farmers to do pick your own. That is still part of, of our fall is the apple picking and the pumpkin picking and everything. Um, so he was really onto something. And many of us, you know, base our economic model on this idea of direct consumer marketing, you know, through our CSAs, through pick your own, through our farm stands, which was championed uh, by Watley as early as the 1950s. So we started saying, you know, if we want to base a farm on this idea, then we also need to be taking care of our soil in these ways, right? And so we used our ancestral methods of cover cropping, of permanent raised beds and no-till, of grazing our livestock interspersed with our crops. And in that way, we're actually able to restore our soils to a pre-colonial level of organic matter, right? We started out with 3%, uh, which is pretty typical in our area of soils that have been heavily degraded. Um, for folks who don't know, when colonizers, you know, came to the Great Plains, within a generation, they had actually burned half of the organic matter out of the soil through heavy tillage and plowing, burned it up into the atmosphere. That was the start of anthropogenic climate change. But through these no-till methods taught to us by our ancestors, we were able to restore our soil carbon to its current tent level of 10 to 12%. Very, very thrilling. And we extended that same ethos to our buildings, right? So we've built uh, you know, all of the structures here on the land. They're timber frame, straw bale, which is a, a reclaimed agricultural waste product, uh, plastered with the clay right from the land. Um, and the buildings are super insulated, energy efficient, uh, use solar and wood for, for heat and for light, and they're durable and beautiful. And so on the whole 80 acres of land, we've actually clustered all the development into just under 10 acres so that the majority of the land is able to be used by the wildlife, the bears, the coyotes, the blue and green herons, um, the fisher cats, and so forth. So we started asking ourselves, you know, who else are the rememberers? And one of the answers is the Black Panther Party. Um, they are often remembered uh, for their use of armed self-defense in, in support of the rights of life for black people. But a lot of folks don't know that the majority of the, their time was actually spent doing what they called survival programs. So they were feeding 10,000 children breakfast every morning in Oakland, right? They were taking elders to their doctor's appointment. They were running shuttles so folks could visit uh, political prisoners um, who were incarcerated. Uh, they were giving out free groceries. And so this powerful idea of paying attention to our community's basic survival needs, our foundational survival needs, became the basis for our work with what we call solidarity shares. So we take our harvest, right? We box it up, just like all of your CSAs, you know, every week, 
and we bring it to the doorsteps of the people who need it most in our community. And these boxes include you know, vegetables, herbs, eggs, pasture-raised meat, value-add products. Um, but instead of charging market rate, we actually charge on a sliding scale where people pay what they can afford. So folks who have less, you know, pay less. Pay, folks who have more pay more than market value. And in the end, it's able to work out where the farmer gets their wage, right? The farmer gets their cost covered, but people are able to enjoy these foods um, regardless of what wealth they've inherited or their zip code or their color of their, the color of their skin. And we deliver this food in a cute white van that's maybe made slightly less creepy by the uh, logo on the side and by the snazzy teenager helping to deliver the boxes. You know, but, in, but folks say that if it wasn't for this box of vegetables, they would be eating boiled pasta, right? They would be um, you know, eating ramen or having to get food from the gas station because they're simply are not affordable options. And, and our family experiences this firsthand when we were living in the south end of Albany. You know, we didn't have a car, we didn't have a lot of money, and, and there weren't grocery stores, there weren't farmer's markets. The only way that we could get fresh food was to join a CSA whose drop-off was over two miles away and on foot, you know, that's significant, carrying your squash and potatoes, you know, two miles up the hill um, with a, a toddler in the stroller and a baby on the back. And that was the nearest fresh food in our community. So. We really wanted to make sure that in starting this farm for the people, that that was the very first thing that we addressed was this access to food back in the south end of Albany and now in you know six neighborhoods in Albany and Troy. So as we started to continue to explore like who are these rememberers, you know, we came across this beautiful example of the first ever extension agent and extension agency in the United States out of Tuskegee University uh, with Mr. Thomas Campbell. Uh, who led the Tuskegee Movable School, which was originally just a cart and a mule, later was upgraded to this snazzy truck. Uh, you know, but this extension agent would go out and share the good news of regenerative agriculture at uh, farms in different counties all around the rural south. You know, because a lot of these farmers, for good reason, you know, they couldn't get to the university. It's a very expensive trip. You can't leave your farm. And so the mule and the cart with all of its equipment, you know, would roll up to the most dilapidated farm in the community. They would get out, you know, prune the trees, nurse the livestock back to health, install uh, fencing, they would plant cover crops, and that would actually become the demonstration site that all the other farmers would come to when they wanted to learn these agricultural techniques. And so we were asking ourselves, you know, what does it look like to embody this ethos of each one teach one on our farm? Because you know, we want to share the little bit that we've gotten to learn as farmers. We've, you know, both my partner and I and the people who work here have worked at many other farms. You know, I was at Many Hands Organic Farm, Farm School, uh, Food Project, worked for Community Gardens. And so it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to just keep that knowledge to ourselves. And at the same time, we started getting phone calls. Even we were only open a few months from people across the country saying, like, is it true that there's black folks farming in a rural space? Like, can I come apprentice with you? Can I come learn with you? So we started our training programs, right? Um, the most popular one is the Soul Fire Farming Immersion. It's a week-long, 50-hour intensive course that covers everything from you know, soil to harvest to market, as well as the proud agrarian history of black and brown people, um, healing from trauma, you know, organizing for a just food system. And people actually come live with us on the farm uh, in groups of about 25 for this program. 
at least half of our graduates actually go on to become farmers and growers. Uh, and we train thousands of people each year in this program and related programs. Uh, we have a youth version of this, our beloved Liberation on Land, where teens come for a farming camp. It's like the Black Future Farmers of America. Um, and that's very exciting. We thought that we'd have new youth every year, but they just keep coming back. They want more. So now, you know, we've had the same group for three consecutive years. And the alumni of these programs are forever part of what we call our Soul Squad. And so we make sure that our alumni have access to funding, uh, a mentor, they have the job referrals that they need in order to actually make it. And this is a lifelong commitment that we have to our alumni to make sure that they can succeed in the very difficult world of farming. And, you know, it's not just commercial farmers that we're raising up. We really believe in the value of home provisioning and community gardening and farming. Um, it's so important to be able to go out your door, you know, harvest that fresh food just 20 feet uh, from your doorstep, bring it inside, teach your children about growing their own food, teach your children about nature. And so for that reason, we have our Soul Fire in the City program, which actually builds raised bed gardens in folks' backyards, as well as schools and churches that request them. And then we provide compost, you know, seeds, plants, classes, technical assistance to support folks in, in getting established as home gardeners. You are tuned in to Common Ground Radio, and today we are listening to the keynote address given on September 25th, 2020 at the Common Ground Country Fair, and this is Leah Penniman of Soulfire Farm speaking about uprooting racism and seeding sovereignty in the food system. Since this is a recording, we are not taking calls on today's show. And this extends, you know, beyond the United States as well. We have this idea of each one teach one and exchange of ideas with other farms internationally. Uh, in Haiti, most notably, uh, that is the ancestral homeland of my maternal lineage. And so since the 2010 earthquake, we've gone to Haiti once or twice every single year uh, to work with farmers there. And we learn as much from them um, as they learn from us. And so we're working on you know, growing mangoes, on stabilizing eroded hillsides, establishing irrigation systems, putting in value add, uh, working with health clinics as well. Um, and we do this work with sibling farms in Vieques, in Ghana, and in Mexico. So, you know, marching through history with this theme of who are the remembers of that sacred seed braided into the hair who are resisting oppression, you know, we come to this movement around land trusts and co-ops. And so we have to shout out New Communities, which was founded by Charles and Shirley Sherrod and 500 other black families in 1969. It was the first ever community land trust in the United States. And since, you know, since then we have hundreds, maybe even thousands of land trusts that have sprung up. Um, we need to shout out Fannie Lou Hamer, who you know, didn't just talk about canning soup. She actually started the Freedom Farm Co-op, a cooperative farm made up of sharecroppers who were kicked off the plantation for the audacity to exercise their right to vote, found themselves homeless and jobless, um, and we're able to join into this new co-op farm. Very, very powerful uh, progenitors of land trust and cooperative movement in the United States. So building off of that legacy, 
we were saying, well, you know, we need to make sure, you know, not only do we have our own cooperative farm, we actually, this land is owned by a co-op and then there's a nonprofit organization that, you know, leases some of the buildings and property as well. But we want to make sure that we're supporting other land trusts and co-ops. And so we became one of the founding farms for the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust, which is 300 plus members strong with a mission around returning land to indigenous people and making land available to black and brown farmers who've historically been dispossessed. And it is such a beautiful network. It started just with a series of potlucks and you know, now has grown into an actual you know, organization that can receive gifts of land return and then have mechanisms for distributing those and keeping them permanently protected for cultural, agricultural, and conservation uses. And we started also making sure that we're supporting our alumni who are starting their own co-ops, land trusts, and you know, and other businesses and initiatives. And you know, the forest is a perfect example of this. You know, when a, a tree in the forest is getting a whole lot of a whole lot of sunlight, so it's able to make sugars and accumulate minerals, it doesn't just grow like six times taller than all the other trees in the forest. It actually takes those resources and dumps them down into a network of fungal mycelium to share with the other trees in the forest. And so we think about growth in that way too. So there is no greater joy for us than seeing these, you know, metaphorical trees grow up um, in the form of the Catatumbo Farming Co-op, which is an immigrant-run uh, farm co-op in Chicago, led by three of our alumni. You know, our alumni also started Love Fed New Haven, People y Alimentos, Miracle on Craig Street, High Hog Farm in Georgia, Percussion Farms, and dozens more. And that is really what success looks, looks like to us. And one of the ways that we support this is through the reparations map, where we, together with the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust, put together a map where these black and brown-led farming food and land projects can be listed, and people who care, really, about making things right in this country can go find a project to support. And we've had many uh, gifts of land, of capital, of even a tractor, you know, given over to help these farmers get started, uh, which is so heartwarming because, you know, while we definitely think the government should pass HR 40 and do wholesale reparations, we can't wait for that, right? As people, we need to act. You know, another example of remembers are the black farmers in the civil rights movement. You know, I learned pretty recently that there actually would be no civil rights movement without black farmers. They literally provided, you know, the the shelter, the meeting space, the food, the clothing, the organizing support for all of those Freedom Summer folks and all those activists who came down to work on the civil rights movement. They even had uh, lookouts that would pay attention if the Knight Riders were coming to attack the activists. They would cut a tree down across the road to slow them down and then help the activists escape. Like powerful stuff, right? If you look at the, the Haitian peasant movement and they're organizing against Monsanto and GMO crops, literally burning GMO crops at the port. You know, you look at um, the Immokalee workers uh, organizing for, for their rights as tomato pickers and building off the legacy of Chavez and Huerta and Larry Eatleong with the United Farm Workers. You know, this is some next level remembering. And so we felt like we had to sort of look beyond just our particular farm and our alumni and think about how are we part of these wider organizing networks. And so in collaboration with national organizations like the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, the Heal Food Alliance, U.S. Food Sovereignty Alliance, we started rabble-rousing for this, this systems change, this root cause change. 
um, reparations and policy shifts. So some examples of that include um, helping to draft provisions of the Green New Deal to make sure that farmers of color are included, um, helping to draft provisions of the Breathe Act around food sovereignty and land sovereignty, um, establishing finance vehicles like the Black Farmer Fund, led by Olive Watkins and Karen Washington, both of whom are our board members, uh, which, which provide capital when the USDA fails us, right? We are even working, um, soon to be announced, and I'll be a little vague because it's secret, but there is a major piece of legislation for black farmers that will be announced shortly, right before the election, um, that we help to write. And this is amazing because when in our history has a presidential candidate um, or even a senator, you know, cared that much about black and brown farmers that they would actually ask us to help write new legislation. But, but here we are at this very hopeful time. And then finally, you know, I want to mention that there's a spiritual component to this too. When we think about remembers, we think about people who don't just remember, you know, cover cropping or cooperative economics, but also remember that the earth is not a commodity to be bought and sold. The earth is a relative. And my teachers are the queen mothers in Ghana, West Africa. I've spent many months living with them over my adult life. And, and they really challenge us as USers. They're like, is it true you put a seed in the ground, right? And you don't pray or sing or dance or even say thank you to the earth. And then you expect that seed to grow. That's why you're all sick, right? That's why you're all struggling because you don't see the earth as actually part of your family. And so it's very important to us that we recognize that psycho-spiritual psycho component also of the work. So you see us here, you know, dancing, singing, um, pouring libations, praying, giving thanks to the earth, and really restoring that ancient covenant um, that we have with the planet. So I'm hopeful. I'm really hopeful because we are all in this together on this life raft of planet earth. And even though the DNA of the US food system is really built on stolen lands and exploited labor, we've seen that throughout history, there have been people who've remembered those seeds that our ancestors braided into their hair, believing against odds in a future of tilling on, and reaping on soil, believing we would exist to inherit the seed. And I believe that you all who are listening to this are also ready to inherit that seed. So we're gonna end by talking a bit about the strategies that we can use to make it right. Because anything that humans create, right, or do, we can also undo. So if we created a racially unjust food system, we can go ahead and fix that and create a racially just food system. My daughter, Nishima, talks about the food system being everything it takes to get sunshine onto your plate, which I love. And the good news in that is that there are so many points of intervention along that arc of the food system, right? We can engage uh, around you know, land redistribution. We can engage around farm worker rights. We can engage around food access. We can engage around policy change. And this butterfly here exemplifies the four wings of transformative social justice. You know, in order to, for a butterfly to fly, it needs all four of its winglets, right? So we need people engaging using resistance. That's you know, the strategy of, of boycott, of, of protest, of hunger strike of lockout, right? We need people engaging as builders of new institutions. That's the strategy of creating land trusts and co-ops and 
farmers markets. We need people engaging with reform. That's the folks working on, on policy and public education, making speeches and campaigning, right? Auditing their own organizations for equity. And we need the healers, the healers who recognize that there's no way we could beat through all of this, right? And not have inherited some trauma and probably be acting that trauma out on each other. So we need, the, we need therapy and story and art and prayer and vigilant. And there's a place for all of this and there's a place for you in helping with these solutions. But the commonality, regardless of what strategy we take, is that we absolutely must be following the lead of the people most impacted by the issues. So in the case of a racially unjust food system, that means black, indigenous, and people of color who are working in farming and food, period. Those are the leaders, right? Those are the folks who we resource. Those are the folks who we defer to. You know, people like Karen Washington, Malik Yakini, Giovanna Johnson, right? Organizations like the Black Dirt Farm Collective and Farms to Grow. Organizations like the Black Farmer Fund, the Land Loss Prevention Project, Fresh Future Farm, Black Urban Growers, the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, the Black Farmer Fund of New York, Black Church Food Security Network, Heal Food Alliance, right? These are the organizations that are often so under-resourced, right? They don't have like a bookkeeper and a website developer and someone to answer their emails and phone. You know, we're talking about oftentimes, you know, volunteer-based organizations operating out of somebody's living room um, that really, because they are so intimate with the problem, really have a handle on the solution. So we need to make sure that we are transferring power over to frontlines-led organizations, resources over to frontlines-led organizations, and dignity to frontlines organizations. And that's it. That's how we can solve the problem together. If you want some more detailed action steps, definitely check out Soul Fire Farms' website. The Take Action page has a list of literally hundreds of things you can do, like policies that need to be changed, ways to source from black and brown producers, um, you know, calling your Congress people to advocate uh, for changes that need to happen and so on. So please definitely check out those action st steps. And remember, as John Lewis said, freedom is not a state, it is an act. It is not some enchanted garden perched high on a distant plateau where we can finally sit down and rest. Freedom is the continuous action we all must take and each generation must do its part to create an even more fair, more just society. So I am going to conclude by sharing with you uh, one of my favorite excerpts from literature, and I hope you enjoy. See, see what you can do. Never mind you can't tell one letter from another. Never mind you born a slave. Never mind you lose your name. Never mind your daddy dead. Never mind nothing. Here, this here is what a person can do if they put their mind to it and their back in it. Stop sniveling, the land said. Stop picking around the edges of the world. Take advantage, and if you can't take advantage, take disadvantage. We live here on this planet, in this nation, in this country, right here, nowhere else. We got a home in this rock, don't you see? Nobody starving in my home, nobody crying in my home, and if I got a home, you got one too. Grab it, grab this land, take it, hold it, my brothers, make it, my sisters, shake it, my siblings, squeeze it, turn it, twist it, beat it, kick it, kiss it, whip it, stomp it, dig it, plow it, seed it, reap it, rent it, buy it, sell it, own it, build it, multiply it, and pass it on. Can you hear me? Pass it on. 
Thanks so much, everyone, for having me. Thanks for listening. Thanks for doing your part to make a fair, just, and sustainable food system. I wish you a joyous and fruitful end of your season. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay sane. Peace, y'all. This has been Common Ground Radio. Thank you for tuning in to today's show. Common Ground Radio can be heard on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. right here on WERU. And archived episodes can be found on WERU's website, www.weru.org, and as well as on the WERU mobile app for your smartphone. Thanks for tuning in today, where we listen to the keynote address from this past, this past year's Common Ground Country Fair, given on Friday, September 25th, by Leah Penniman of Soulfire Farm. We look forward to seeing you again next month here on the radio. And please stay tuned for more great programming.